0: everyone, And welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at modern retellings of the Iliad and the Odyssey, ancient epics known for both brutal violence and instances of sexual assault. This episode is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverage and snack ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. Men of troy part two except first tea i have juniper and wild mint which is actually really tasty
1: Ooh, Ooh that
0: sounds really good
1: um i just have normal black tea but it's twinings and i'm in britain
0: so oh i love twinings tea
1: see so i'm like obviously it's wonderful good so you know can't argue with Twinings.
0: when i was um i worked as a camp counselor in upstate new york for a couple of summers and my mom like halfway through the summer would always send me a care package with usually marmite and always some kind of twinings tea and it was it was beautiful absolutely beautiful
1: i i love the twinings i yep. unfortunately have not become so British that I can say I like Marmite.
0: Well, I mean, there are a lot of British people who don't like Marmite either. So i like, we can forgive you that one. We can, fig- like, I mean, their slogan is you either love it or hate it. It's, it's one of those, <laughs> one of those things. <laughs>
1: That's good. Well, you know, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm coming to terms with the mortality of my situation, which is I am due to fly back to – it is now Thursday, so I'm due to fly back to Greece early on Monday morning. So my time in the UK is coming to a close in like four short days, and I'm so sad and depressed about it because I finally got to the point where my british friends did not have to correct me for saying most words because i said them in the british way without batting an eyelid or feeling weird or self-conscious like we were in the car the other day and i literally just like nonchalantly without even thinking about how it's strange for an american i just like pointed out and said hey you're low on petrol would you like to stop for more and she was like bless my heart bless my heart
0: yes i i forget not sometimes which words are British English versus American English. But a lot of the time, same words have different pronunciations, like schedule and schedule. I have no idea which I am supposed to be saying. Genuinely no idea which is American English and which is British English. And I will reliably get it wrong every single time I talk to my mother. And she's like, no, Megan, we, we don't know. That's the wrong, the wrong. And I'm like, God damn it. And I thought long and hot, and you would be surprised how often this word comes up in conversations with my mom. I don't know why it does, but it does, semi-regularly. And I always get it wrong, and I feel feel like,
1: But I feel like if anyone would be able to be forgiven for mistakes like this, it's you, because you've lived in the States for a very long time, enough to be Americanized, enough to, because it's like, when you come over here, unless you're planning on going right back to the UK and don't want to bother learning Americanisms, you're going to learn them. And then you have an American husband, and american children so like i feel like no it, it it makes sense that you are like a british person who uses american english unless you try to code switch when you talk to people back home which then goes disastrously because then it confuses your poor brain i
0: can i can do it when i'm in the uk it's it's when i'm in the us and it's not all words but usually when i'm in the us trying to talk british english it just is is very difficult
1: <laughs> yeah it's okay i'm gonna have the same issues because honestly i've picked up so much british english and british expressions i'm gonna want to say them and when i get home people are gonna be like stop you're being pretentious you're not even british
0: just call me and say megan i have to talk to you about petrol it's really important
1: <laughs> about petrol and aluminium yeah yeah yes. exactly and coriander yep oh coriander this is just be- such a good word this is why i need more british friends right this is why i need british friends so i can talk call and just be like i miss my life in the uk i need to talk about it with someone who understands because most americans don't understand
0: here are all of the words i need to say to you right now (laughs)
1: exactly and i need to talk about petrol at petrol stations Mm -hmm. petrol stations yep Mm -hmm. Mm roundabouts so that's that's what I'm going to do. When I when I need my fix, my kick of britishisms, I will call you and be like, "Hey, do you miss talking in like normal like britishisms because we can we can we can let's let's dance."
0: Absolutely. That sounds wonderful. Yes. Okay, so do you have any snacks today? I have Pocky actually. It was in my secret Santa box and it's wonderful and I'm I'm eating it before my kids realize I have any. Because <laughs> as soon as they realise, I will not have pocky anymore. Oh, my four-year-old well, like- is very good at finding the hiding places that I have for candy. Um, so he ate most of the the chocolate my husband got me for Christmas. <laughs> no, wait, can you no.
1: can can you hide any of it on your own personage, or is that like not good?
0: Because the children crawl all over you. They yeah, they do that. They do that unfortunately so they don't know about the pocky i'm eating it quietly sneakily before they realize he's downstairs watching uh cartoons so he's not going to come looking for me so yes
1: good yes. actively engaged i you my yes. today um not currently although i can just admit <laughs> the most american thing i've done the entire time i've been living in britain <clears throat> I caved the other day and I ordered one box of American Kraft mac and cheese because I wanted it so bad. And so I just made that for lunch and I just finished inhaling the
0: entire bowl. There are some food things that are just so, like, you can't replicate them. And I don't get the Kraft mac and cheese thing because I didn't grow up on it. But there are some some things like Tesco's frozen sausage rolls—they're these little party snacks that my mama always used to get for Christmas and New Years and birthdays—and I'm one of four, sometimes six, depending on how many kids were in the house—and she just whack them in the oven, take them out, and we would literally demolish the entire tray. And I miss those, like they're my firstborn child sometimes. And like I need my sausage rolls, and I can make sausage rolls—I've made them before; they're delicious. But they just don't taste the same,
1: and Can you I miss order them? them.
0: No, Can you order them? no, unfortunately. Well, um, if I'd have known, I would run out and get them and send them to you. <laughs> oh man! Um, but yeah, I, I absolutely get the the craft mac and cheese thing. Yeah, it's just you know, foods it's I just like, just crave. Yeah, because you know, people are like, but it's not
1: even good. It's not even real cheese. You're living in Europe that has real, like, good cheese. Why are you eating? But it doesn't like, Look, taste like your childhood. Exactly, and I'm like, it's. I don't eat this stuff because it's delicious. Yeah. I eat it because I want comfort food, and then mm-hmm. it takes It takes me back to sitting at the table when I'm like five with my mommy making me mac and cheese. Okay, yeah. that's that's why I eat it. But yeah, so I just had <clears throat> a nice big thing of it, and it was delicious. delicious. Good, and um, I was oh, let me register while I'm at it. I'm really mad that the UK does not have goldfish because it is like my favorite snack in the world. Are and so, actually. I have a box of goldfish that I've been good. saving and saving for months, um, and I've I've been waiting to probably eat it right before I leave the UK. Just you know, triumphantly eating goldfish. But um, come on, UK, get goldfish! I want them.
0: <laughs> Agreed, they are <laughs> excellent snacking foods. But we should talk, Women of Troy. Part. Do you want to give? A,
1: do you want to give a summary of part two? Since yes. you're so good at doing our summaries. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes so we leave off when pyrrhus has has found someone trying to bury priam and he's dug him up and said anyone who is caught trying to bury this what is now a kind of rotted off corpse will be put to death and you and you just know you know that Amina's is going to go back out and try and bury him and somehow briseis is going to get caught up in it and that's what happens tada um so amina goes tries to bury him and Briseis goes and is like, no, 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 you can't do that, you can't do that, and then ends up helping her bury him. And They get caught, and it's a whole thing. And Pyrrhus ends up killing Amina in a, like a really weird, yeah. We'll t- we'll get to that, but that that whole scene was was very odd because it. We've got a couple more chapters from Pyrrhus' point of view very strange and we have the the games that they've kind of been talking about in the background to keep the men occupied and and not start killing each other because they're so bored and trapped on a beach and we find out that one of the slave girls is pregnant with her trojan now dead um boyfriend boyfriend's baby, and that's the whole thing. so she has a baby and it's a boy, which is also a whole thing because all the Trojan baby boys were killed and all the pregnant women were killed just in case they had a boy uh, so that's a little bit um of intrigue and we get Cassandra marrying Agamemnon and Cassandra and Calchas kind of plotting together to try and get Paris to have to sacrifice his beloved horse, which was um it did what well, didn't end up happening. And I think Pyrrhus got out of it in a very clever way. But that was interesting. And um, we have Priam's funeral because they decide that that's why they're stuck on the beach because of the funeral rites haven't taken place and because of offending Zeus and the guest friendship hospitality thing. So all of that happens. And eventually they get to leave. And yeah, you kind of, Briseis narrates the last chapter kind of saying goodbye to everyone and all the women being put on their different ships and sailing off and i have to say i enjoyed this half i found it less compelling than the first half and i've been trying to put my finger on why and i i'm not entirely sure it didn't feel as emotionally um engaging maybe as the first half did i know in the first half i like i felt like a lot of like sadness for briseis and It really felt quite connected to a lot of the characters. For some reason in the second half, that didn't seem to carry through. I don't know why. And it just wasn't, yeah, it didn't feel like a a strong, the whole of the novel didn't feel as strong, I think, as Silence of the Girls. And I'm going to be interested because there is a third book coming, I think, in 2024, which... Uh, is the the journey back to Greece, so I will be interested to see how it kind of carries on because again, both science of the girls and the women of Troy are characterized by the women 's lack of agency and just the inability to leave everyone 's inability to leave men and women they 're stuck on the beach in both books, and in the third book they 're going to be stuck on boats, so it will be interesting to see how that kind of works itself out uh i was sad that we didn't get more helen i was not surprised but i was sad that we didn't get more helen it was a delight to see hecuba back she continued to be brilliant and wonderful and amazing and commanding odysseus to come to her tent even though she's a slave and he's a king and he came because of course he did um yeah i said um an awful lot in this brief synopsis but that's kind of what happened lexi what are your thoughts (laughs) <laughs> um wow and now i'm
1: starting with um it's okay you know what i can edit that i can edit that out or whatever anyway that's the beauty of podcasting but i will say i agree that the second half i did not find as compelling but i think because i was trying to diagnose why i felt like it and so in trying to take a stab at why i think It's because the first half was so well done in terms of you have to set up the dynamics and the relationships and you have to get into kind of the nitty gritty and you have to get into the conflict. And so what you get is, you know, a first look at, okay, what does the relationship look like now that the war is over? What's happening now that they're stuck in this situation and they can't leave and they can't go home, even though they really want to. So I think it was compelling because it built up all these relationships and you were talking to these people often for the first time. But what you're getting in the second half though is you already know Amina, you know all the characters, you know the dynamic, and it has to the book has to find a way to shove the plot forward and get to the end of it to the point where they leave. So one, I felt like, okay, well, I, I know what's coming, so she's gonna have to tie this off and, and figure it out. Like you there's only so far you can extend the mystery. So I liked the first half because it was building up the mystery. But once you you kind of pass that climax, you're kind of like, Okay, well, now, like, okay, they they found who's, you know, trying to bury Priam. And now we just have to punish them. And we have to now get from the wrongful punishment and, de- you know, all this stuff, you have to get to where suddenly how does prime actually get buried. So I felt like it was just she like spent a lot of time building up the first half and really investing in the characters. But I feel like I get it because on the one hand you don't have forever unless you want a massively long novel. But at the same time, she almost didn't leave herself enough room in my opinion because then she just crammed it together. So then it felt like, cause the thing is, I don't know about you, if you felt this, I still had no freaking concept of time. I was like, when is this happening? Is this all one day then the next day? So they found Amina and then they locked them in the tent at night and then she went to prison and then they killed her the next day or they killed her 10 days from that. Like, I was like, what? So the the herky-jerky compressing of the second half Narratively, got lost in the I don't know what when this is happening, and so it just felt quite clunky, which is why I think it just didn't feel smooth uh yeah,
0: it, in, in the way the first half did. Yeah, and I, I I'm still unclear as to how long they were actually on the beach in this particular narrative. It the days seem to I mean I think deliberately bleed into like one long thing, which makes sense. They've been there forever. It probably doesn't feel like days are distinct anymore, but it didn't it didn't work for me terribly well as a narrative device. And I felt I felt like the discovery of who was burying Priam and then Amina's very quick um and unplanned, like completely almost accidental death. I mean it wasn't an accident because Pyrrhus throttled her, but not because of what she did to Priam because she had seen how badly he bungled Priam's execution for want of a better word because she was there and he was like, oh, no one must know. And then he killed her. So no one knows. But then you get this like little bit from Pyrrha saying there were like 30 or 40 women there. I can't kill them all. I just have to deal with it. So I found his inner turmoil very interesting, uh, but it felt like that was the climax of the book but it came at the halfway point. And then the rest of it, it didn't feel like it was going anywhere. There were lots of little events that happened, but it, I didn't feel like there was much of a driving, anything behind it and i wanted things developed more i think that weren't so i i wanted Briseis' relationship with her husband explored more fully because that was really interesting to me we know that he was in love with her when she was a achilles' slave we know that achilles married her off to him knowing that he would he would die and, and she needed someone to take care of him and it looks like they've essentially ignored each other for however long they've been married And I wanted that explored more. That could have been really interesting. And at at some point in the second half of the book, um, Brisea says that he thinks she's in love with Achilles. He thinks that she loved him and still loves him. That would have been a really interesting thing for them to explore as a pair of characters who are tied together for better or worse. So I was disappointed that wasn't really gone into a little bit more and I mean, it, the book is called The Women of Troy, so it's unsurprising that the male characters don't figure terribly largely. But the main relationship between the women in in the first half of the book was Briseis and Amina. And then you kill Amina off, and then it's just kind of Briseis wandering around, talking to whoever is is there and, and whoever needs help. And even Ritza, who's the, the slave in the hospital tent, She doesn't play terribly largely because she goes from being Briseis essentially best friend in the first book to friend still in the first half of the book, but then you only see her a couple of times in the second half. And it it just felt like we were losing the more interesting relationships that, that could have been explored and developed. And also the other thing I wanted looked at more, and again, it's the women of Troy, not the men of Greece, but the conflict between the myrmidons and the men that pyrrhus brought with him from skiros because that is that's touched on in several places there's clearly something going on there that would have been really really interesting to look at further and and to develop a bit more and i i don't know maybe maybe she'll get to it in the third book but yeah it, it felt like the main relationship was ended halfway through and then we didn't really get anything to replace it
1: I mean, as I said, like, I understand where she she couldn't, well, she could have, but she didn't want to, nor would I think it would have been appropriate for her to have, like, a massive novel. Because, I mean, it's, you don't want to read that unless you, like, really, really are invested. So I understand her not wanting to have something end up twice the length of the current novel, because that would just be a lot. But yeah, yeah I mean as i said yeah it's just like i i like the first half because it builds the mystery and it builds it 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 world builds it character builds and it builds the plot the second half feels very sort of yeah it just feels quick it just feels it feels quick and, and compressed i i i was thinking about saying for a minute that it felt a bit undeserved like we like like that we didn't like, we deserve better. But but I don't want to say that because actually there's probably a lot that went into the decision that obviously we're not privy to. So I won't say it's it's an undeserved ending. But, uh, yeah, it just, you know, I think I would have even appreciated, even like with Briseis' narration, it, if she wanted to imply that this lack of timeline was like the hell of you don't know because time doesn't matter anymore because you're miserable and you're a slave and so whatever. I would have appreciated that in the context of she could have just like started the narration or, or or even ended or said something like, and we were stuck on this beach for 10 days, but these 10 days were so long and miserable that it felt like one big, long, never ending day. Like, like she could have said something, you know, to, um, to just imply it, to give us a timeline one. And then two, yes, if, if maybe it's a little too on the nose to be like yes and it felt like one long unceasing day like okay maybe that's a little dramatic i get it but i would have appreciated some nod because i'm like look if you know the original source material they don't really talk about oh yes and they defeated the the trojans and then they were stuck on the beach for a year and then they left for home no what we normally hear wouldn't you see adaptations of or read the the iliad and and stuff you just see it like okay they they won and then they took the time to get the slaves and the booty and then boom they left so yes it's like you know it's it's a little ambiguous but that doesn't imply like the the amount of stuff that she has happening in her novel it makes it seem like it's not just a couple days but also, I'm like, is that enough time to fill like a year or something? Yeah. Uh, six months. I mean, I I would ho- I was trying to like measure the time based on Prime's corpse. So here I was trying to be little Miss Scientist, Googling, and, and anyone looking at my Google history would be like, is she insane? Because I was like Googling how long does it take for a corpse to to like disintegrate how long before it starts smelling, but not is, you know, completely worn away. I was trying to literally figure out how long based on the decomposition of Prime's body, but then I was like, well, there's so many factors that go into a body, the body's decomposition that I was like, I don't think I can guess because weather affects it if it's cold then it'll be preserved longer if it's warm it'll go faster uh, i was like at the end i kind of gave up because i was like <laughs> i'm not a scientist i don't like science so i was not super invested in actually breaking it down to the actual science but yeah no i was uh, googling around being like okay so approximately how long did they have because if the body decomposed in like 10 days and this probably took
0: place all in 10 days i don't know it was
1: strange strange i think
0: i think going off something you you, you said a, a minute ago i think one of the things that the book suffers from is too many different plot points mm. with not enough time to fully develop any of them mm-hmm. because that i enjoyed cassandra's sections i found her really interesting i enjoyed the interplay between her and calcas and them trying to work out why are we stuck here? Can we give the Greeks a reason so that they have someone to blame so that maybe we can move forward? I enjoyed Hecuba 's sections. They were really interesting. I enjoyed looking at the, the women in the slave hut and Briseis' relationship with them. But because it's quite a short book, and I don't have it, it's in my bedroom. It's not a long book. I read the second half in an hour and a half. It's not a huge thing. Um, but because it's so short, I feel like she tried to put too much in and i think it probably would have and again i admire what was going on with it it feels an awful lot like thousand ships because you have these different stories all kind of interwoven together i think where thousand ships succeeded and this one maybe could have done better on is taking those stories a little further. And the reason Thousand Ships could do it was because it was from all the different viewpoints and the different perspectives. I think this one and clearly is, on different timelines too. Exactly. exactly. This one is all from, from Briseis or Pyrrhus, but mainly Briseis. So the reader isn't privy to any of the internal workings of the other women in Thousand Ships, you know, what's going on in all their heads. So it, 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 it moves the story faster and more fully than you can do if you're having to have things revealed to you via narration. And I think that's something that I struggled with because it's, it's interesting. It's good stuff. It just, we didn't have enough of any specific thing for me to feel terribly emotionally invested in what was going on. And I think maybe if we'd removed one of the plot points either the women in the slave tent or Hecuba or Cassandra if we'd removed one of those it would have given more space to or even two of them just just choose one it would have given more space to develop what was going on like if if we took out the women in the slave tent and had Cassandra and Hecuba kind of tied in together because there's a whole family dynamic there and then you've got That related to priam's burial and had everything kind of moving forward to how do we get priam buried how do we get off this beach and have briseis involved in in those things instead of kind of flitting between all the different stories and all the different people i think it it maybe would have been a more satisfying read
1: i think so i agree but also i think one of the reasons at least for me, ships did so well, though, is because it is told in a very non linear timeline. Um, because you could literally go from chapter two with, um, uh, what's her name? Oh my god, wait, why am I blanking on her name? Um, Anea's wife, yes, he wife. Wait, what the fuck's her name? Sorry, um, uh, no, I can't remember either. My brain just hurts today. Ah, okay. Well, I'll remember it in a minute because it always comes back to me anyway. So you could have her. And then what you could also then have though was the very next one would be Oinoni. And then you'd be like, Oh, well, this is clearly not in the same time as anybody else. So you're like, okay, well then this is completely different. Um, or you know you go from the goddesses at the beginning of the war having their little contest, and then you have Penthesilea being like, okay, well this is the day I go kill Achilles, and you're like, okay, well I know exactly what's happening because she sets she she sets the own like her own mini timeline, and she basically tells you exactly when in the war, when in the sequence it's happening, and so I don't mind that she jumps around because it doesn't have to be a linear story. So I loved that, and ah, oh, her name is Creusa. Thank you, Ayusa. Um, Anyway, so I liked that, and it's what made it unique. And so I think, yeah, this could have benefited from a nonlinear time. Now, if you wanted to say, okay, it's going to be told from the perspective of Briseis, and she's mostly going to talk about her time between the end of the war and when they could leave, I'd be like, okay, okay, fine. If you want to bring in some of the other perspectives, just say, you know, it it could have been as simple as... um, okay I'll take Cassandra oh yes Brzeus has been busy doing this well I've been doing this while she's been doing that I'm like oh okay like you know it it doesn't have to be complicated um but don't I just yeah I don't like how she just walks around I see her now and I'm like well what is she doing
0: in the meantime and I think because We have that with Pyrrhus, right? We didn't, I don't think we had that in Silence of the Girls. Wasn't it all from Briseis' point of view? Yes, it was. Yeah. So because she's already introduced this different viewpoint thing with Pyrrhus. Or no, wait, did we have a bit of
1: Patroclus, actually?
0: Oh, maybe. I don't remember.
1: Because I know, I know, so like, because I remember, because I think when we, when we originally read them, right, it was... We did Song of Achilles, which is all Patroclus, but then I think mm-hmm. I was pleased because then we switched oh, right to yeah and then we were like, oh, wait, we still get him, but from a different perspective mm-hmm. because this Briseis is different than the other Briseis. No, I so think so we right. might
0: have gotten rid of him. Um, but either way, different viewpoints is not out of ordinary for this book. It could have been done really easily. And I think you're right. I think it would have helped. Just have a mini timeline within each person. And again, I, I I do understand the the need to convey the monotony of being stuck on a beach. I absolutely understand that. The problem is, from a reader's point of view, it's actually it's difficult to read, and it, you and you're left, like we've said, with these disparate events that that are strung together. They're related, but there's not a lot of I don't know impetus, driving force behind what's going on
1: yeah so i mean okay i was a little disappointed with the second half but but one thing i did want to get into though <laughs> was when pierce finally is accused of you know violating the guest friendship so you have to bury him and all that um the whole you know you have to sacrifice your horse and then he gets out of it by cutting off his hair what like what was going through your mind then? because i was just like. I mean, yay for the horse because I'm such a horse person. So I'm like, yay, horse didn't die. But I was also like, really? After all you've done, and you've made it, it's now clear that you're the one responsible for keeping everyone here for this undetermined amount of time. But everyone's pissed about it, and all you gotta do is cut off your hair, and you're you're good. Really?
0: I was I was waiting for it to fail. I was waiting for him to do that, and for them to still be stuck on the beach. I was really surprised that he did that, and then suddenly the winds has changed and they can leave and it it just it just felt i mean i didn't want the horse to die either right that seemed really really petty on the part of cassandra and colchis to be like you got to sacrifice your horse dude sorry it's the only way forward but there has to be something and the cutting of the hair i mean Briseis says, "Oh, it it might not seem much to a Trojan, but to the Greek warriors watching, who were so proud of their long flowing locks, this was this was a huge thing. And it just it's never been mentioned before. We or we obviously know Pyrrhus has red hair because it it's it's spoken about as a defining feature when he's on the chariot in the chariot race. He takes off his helmet, and then there's this mane of red hair, and everyone cheers because they know they know who it is. But nowhere." In neither of the books has anyone made a big thing about Greek warriors having long hair, about it being a sign of manhood or virility or pride or nobility or any of this. And suddenly cutting his hair is apparently enough to appease the gods for murdering a man who was in a guest friendship with his father. It just seemed so out of left field. It was quite irritating. And then then it works. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, I, I was expecting I was fully expecting reading that sequence, I was expecting for him to do it, for it to fail, and then for there to be some kind of conflict surrounding that that had to be resolved before they could leave. Maybe he doesn't have to kill the horse, maybe he has to do something else, but some kind of sacrifice, personal sacrifice, to atone for what he's done, like as opposed to cutting his hair. It was it was odd
1: yeah well you you know you know what i okay my brain works weird and anyone who knows me or who's probably heard me on one of the podcasts probably knows that my brain is weird so i did know i mean okay for for someone who has no background in greek mythology who reads this cutting your hair because it's such a big deal and it's a sign of warrior's pride yeah that is really out of left field now as a classicist luckily i did have the background to know that yes like your long hair, because they were the long-haired Achaeans, like they're very, very proud of their long hair. And it is a sign of great pride. And if you have short hair, you're like the weirdo who basically has no accomplishments. So I did know that. But one, I did not expect that to be nearly enough. But also it was funny because the first thing that popped into my head when I did hear about the whole, well, what if I just cut my hair, my source of pride? It made me think of Game of Thrones and the Dothraki because you know how they have the long hair. So you like, because they have this cool tradition, and and I like I didn't pick it up from the show. It was when I was going in through like the more in depth nerd files of okay, let's look more into Westerosi and uh, Game of Thrones universe stuff. But every time they conquer someone or win a battle, they would add a braid, and so that's why when you see Khaleesi through all eight seasons, why her hair gets more braids and more intensive designs. It's because she was conquering all those people. So she could add all those cool braided patterns. And I was like, oh, I finally understand this is cool. So my brain thought of the Dothraki and I was like, yeah, actually, well, if we were in Game of Thrones world, it would be a big deal if you cut your hair. I mean, that would be like, oh my God, you lost all your pride. You have no accomplishments. Ha ha ha, we're gonna laugh at you. So on the one hand, to me as a classist, it made more sense that it was the hair rather than something else i was expecting yes that the hair alone would fail but i figured like the hair would be enough of a big deal that they could be like okay your hair and sacrifice a slave or or something of that nature um i don't think i would have expected something much bigger than that because like bury priam with achilles armor
0: but see no there's no something something, but but the thing is in the book there's no precedent for the hair thing either
1: I know, I know, and I'm only drawing that because of my knowledge. I know, I'm, I'm,
0: I'm glad to hear that there is an actual reason it was in there. It wasn't just, like, plucked out of the ether. But- no,
1: but I get what you mean. Like, if if you don't know, if you're not a classicist, you would never pick up on that. You'd just be like, okay, so randomly cutting a down. No, so I, I agree. There should there should have been something more. Um, I d- <laughs> I don't know, because even then, I'm like, okay, maybe for entertainment purposes. Yeah, okay, bury Prime and Achilles. But I'm also just like, yeah, but he, that to me, that's almost too far because it's like, well, Prime didn't defeat Achilles. So you wouldn't really give that honor. Like, if anything, Hector should have been buried in it because he at least dueled the man. You know, he didn't win, but he dueled him. I never want to give Paris any credit for anything. So I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to give him the armor. But, you know, just like, if you're going to have someone dead who had some connection, you know, like,
0: so to me, I'm like, there wasn't something like that. I or What we need is something that is deeply personal to Paris. Yeah, like, uh, give him Prime's ring or something. Something that was deeply personal to Paris that would actually hurt him to give up, which is why Cassandra and Calcas chose the horse but that was like not because i feel like sacrificing a slave doesn't really do much for pyrrhus like he doesn't care he's got eight bazillion slaves and he can't kill his favorite slave is andromache they can't kill andromache because that just goes with the guest friendship thing again and it's even more of a violation like when they kill polyxena
1: but why are we have why do why does he have to give up what if they saddled him with responsibility like okay you need to raise andromache's child or or something like you know she was your wife the the wife of your great enemy hector whatever i don't know just like like make him marry
0: andromache instead of menelaus and helen's daughter and say look you killed her father you killed her husband you violated this this guest friendship agreement you are responsible for her well-being and maybe for um hecuba's well-being like you have to take her in and treat her like the honored mother-in-law that she is yeah
1: because i think like yes you can think about punishment as you have to take something away from someone but i think actually that's as hard as that is, I think it'd be harder to be saddled with the responsibility that you don't want. Because if, if you if you lose something, if it's taken away, then it's like you're really mad or you're really sad, but then it's gone and then you're like, okay, whatever, it's it's pieced out of here. But if he was saddled with the great responsibility of like marrying her or or treating her nicely or something that sticks around because you can't kill her, because then everyone will know you killed her just to get rid of the responsibility. It's, it's like like anything in life. Responsibility follows you around, whether you like it or not. So for me i'm like actually i would go the other way because i think punishment is worse when you're forced to do something you don't want instead of just losing something because i mean they both suck but it's gone so and and the thing is back then guest friendship was the most sacred and most important like thing in ancient greece like like that is the one do not violate never violate guest friendship oh my gosh because Zeus of Xenia is gonna come and like bring horrible things to you if you violate this, so yeah, it would have warranted some sort of forced responsibility in in my opinion, definitely, and actually, taking care of Prime's widow would have been like the perfect revenge, like, oh, you killed the man, you didn't bury him, you violated his guest friendship, so guess what, honey, you gotta take his widow into your home, you have to. Free her, or like like free her. Don't make her a slave. Or even if she is a slave, you have to treat her as an honored guest in your house. Right? See some like something yeah. to be like. Now you must repay the guest friendship to. That wife. would have felt fitting. Yeah, that would have
0: felt really fitting.
1: We could just rewrite the whole book we for could. her. We could It'd
0: be fun. I'm sure. I'm sure she'd be thrilled.
1: It would be really fun to talk to her about why she made the decision she did, because this is this would be the one thing where I'd be like, "Please talk to us about this, really, really." So, yeah, that was interesting. But okay, did did were you also a bit like taken aback by how they also minimized the pregnancies of both? Briseis and Andromache in the second half because they made such a big deal about it in the first half. I was like, yes, it's building, it's growing. Hopefully they'll both give birth to these children and then we'll see this great dynamic about it.
0: And then, no. I was expecting Briseis to have her baby before the end of the book. And we get a baby, but it's the baby of the, I can't remember her name, but the baby of the slave girl. And it's a lovely story. She essentially falls in love with another slave and they sneak off together and kind of court and she gets pregnant and then little weird because she's a larger lady and is always shrouded in in black no one realizes she's pregnant until she is actually well Briseis doesn't realize the other slave women know Briseis doesn't realize she's actually in labor until she throws up and one of the other slaves is like you how do you not know what's going on here and Briseis says oh yes well we should um we should do something about this and it, that was that was a very compelling section because there's the fear of someone will will hear a woman in labor and come and kill her or come and kill the baby and then the baby is born and it is a boy which is big problem so they and they swaddle him and they tell everyone oh the slave girl had a had a baby girl in the night it lovely and no one really cares because the slaves have babies it, it's it's one of the ways you make more slaves and yeah that was i I felt something there that was a good a good section and then the she kind of pops up again and all the slave girls are really happy because there's a baby and it's a nice distraction and then when pyrrhus and again this this was a bit that was confusing because pyrrhus walks into the the slave arena slave area and sees the naked baby and it's, it's a naked baby, and it's a boy, and obviously it's a boy. And Briseis, her, her internal monologue says, okay, we have to get this baby and this mother away before this crazy man kills them. But then directly after that, you have a section narrated by Pyrrhus, who apparently hasn't even noticed that there is a male child in his slave camp. It, 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 he never mentions it. Um, and he's concerned with Amina, and that that's the, the section where he kills her. But they still move forward with, with moving the, the mother and child to someone else's um, encampment. Which again was interesting, but I was a little confused. I was expecting some kind of fallout, some kind of Pyrrhus asking after this random male baby, or at least thinking about it in the sections that he narrates. It, it, it felt a little strange. Look, it's all well and good. I'm, I, I'm sure
1: it added a thing, a dimension to the story. But to me, that that whole thing was like a bunch of the excess fat that sort of bloated and took the story in ways where you could have taken the space and devoted it to something really central to your main characters or your plot. Yeah. Um. I. I. Like, on the one hand, I sort of understand what she was going for when she wanted to have this whole thing. But she spent a lot of the first half of the entire book talking about Briseis' complicated relationship with this baby and how the Myrmidons felt like they owned it because, oh, you're carrying the great son of Achilles. And and how they were like, this is our baby. And your baby, but our baby too. And you have this whole thing about how she's like... I don't know because it's my shield it's my protection so i need to love it but i also don't love it because this was produced by someone i didn't really like and he killed my family and
0: she set up this beautiful thing and then it's completely ignored in the second half
1: right so like why because i'm like you could have taken that slave baby fine i'm sure it adds something I put it in the next book honey put it in the next book because what i want is i want to see more of when your baby is born how do the myrmidons react how do you react how does andromache react like i don't understand what a, what the hell is the point of i mean I- I- if it's sort of an issue but you don't want to make it a defining issue of your novel then what she could have done don't devote started, the first half to it Right, like instead of spending so much time on having her be conflicted about her pregnancy and how she doesn't like it, then just have her be like, "Oh yeah, I'm pregnant." Yeah, you know. I'm I'm having a baby. Great. Woo. Like just just don't go into such detail about the conflicted feelings if you're not going to do anything with it. So, yeah, no, I got um pretty sad and mad. Yeah.
0: I think I think you're right that I did enjoy reading that section, but Overall, it didn't add an awful lot to the book or to the story as a whole, especially because this the, the slave who's pregnant doesn't feature very largely in the whole of the first half. She pops up occasionally. You know who she is. But she's she's no one that Briseis ever talks to. She's not really given any space to speak herself so i i think if you i think you're right i think if you want to have a birth sequence or or something to do with someone having a baby you have a pregnant main character maybe maybe go with that instead of a random person having a random baby which is very sweet we yay babies i'm obviously a fan of babies i have had several but it, it didn't do a lot for the story and and I feel I, I do wonder if once Amina was dead, she felt Pat Barker felt like she needed to add some kind of conflict in there because Amina and, and Briseis had this like weird, tense relationship and um, which was interesting. So that's gone. We need something else to occupy people. But I'm not sure this was necessarily the way to go.
1: I mean, look, if you want some conflict over babies, you got Andromache who's there, too. And you've got her she's pregnant so you know if she wanted to set up some drama then she could have had at least andromache's baby born and then have some sort of conflicted relationship over her baby and and how she feels about it you know you could make andromache love the baby and then you could have briseis like how can you love your captor's baby like something i just don't see the utility of bringing in a random person who just was not important in the first half and then you're like oh suddenly she's here i just that's my problem i don't like books that have a lot of excess fat like trim the fat honey you know what i will happily read things but i like i just don't bring in something for like no good reason i don't understand i don't understand that um although do you think maybe she's waiting because she she wanted the babies to be born in the new book on the ship
0: I, i'm wondering yeah i'm wondering if that's what is going on because you have briseis if she was in camp and giving birth then ritsa would be there who is like has been her like anchor point really for a book and a half she's not going to be on the ship because she's agamemnon's slave she's going with agamemnon so you have briseis kind of alone almost she has andromache but they're not super duper close she has andromache and she has the rest of of pyrrhus slave women but there isn't really anyone in the same way that she can lean on and draw strength from so it could be that that's going to be one of the central points in book Mm. three
1: I mean, I guess if she wants to wait and make the drama play out when they're like on the ships with Brzee having her child. Fine. But also, that would mean that she would have to know immediately that she wanted to go on and she would probably have to figure that this book would not be ready for a couple more years. So she probably then would have to sit there and make the decision like, okay, I'll leave people on a cliffhanger because I made such a big deal. But to not even hint like at the end of the book that maybe something is coming like she didn't do anything with it so i'm kind of like if you're not gonna hint or sort of build a little you know you can shove it to the back burner but still kind of make it seem like okay it'll it'll be a thing like there was none of that so either she just like didn't think about it and then she was like oh whoops i forgot i guess i'll put it in the next one as she's writing the next one or maybe she just had a different idea i have no idea i'm just like it's just it struck me as very strange and I just was like, okay, I don't, I don't know. I, there were a lot of things that I kind of, if you were to see me, I just sort of made a face mm. and I was like, oh, I was like, really? What? So yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, were you disappointed about anything else big or did the rest of it, excluding all the things we've basically highlighted, was it kind of like, Okay. I was-, I was a
0: little surprised by how prominent Cassandra gets in the second half. I enjoyed it. I, I find her character very interesting. And um, looking ahead to book three, it's apparently going to be focusing more on Cassandra and Agamemnon and what happens when they get back um, to their home, which will be interesting because I don't know if – I assume Briseis will be narrating it, so how that happens will be will be very interesting. <laughs> Uh, So it makes sense that she gets a, a bigger part as the book goes on because she's going to figure prominently in book three. But I was, I was surprised to see that much of her. I was happy to see that much of her because like I said, she's an interesting character. It was a little surprising that she was so instrumental or seems to have been so instrumental in trying to bring about Pierce downfall. The, the decision or the accusation of Calchas to say that oh well the reason we're stuck on the beach is because pyrrhus violated the guest friendship of his father and and priam is very clearly and it's explicitly said between some of the women this is a scheme cooked up by cassandra and Calchas with briseis because she is kind of like an instrumental witness she says oh well um achilles used specific terminology when talking to Priam and he said that he would if when when Troy falls call me and I will defend you which is guest friendship stuff right so without Briseis they don't really have much evidence for that but it's a, it's a scheme cooked up by Cassandra and Colchis, which was uh interesting and unexpected and I think so we see Calchas in the first half of the book also and we get a couple of chapters narrated by him too but the relationship that we see in the first half is Calchas and Hecuba so it was surprising to see Calchas and Cassandra in the second half and it's explained beautifully like they were both priests of the same area they knew each other from before the fall of Troy but maybe foreshadow that in the beginning of the book so it's not a total left field when suddenly they're reminiscing about their time spent together at the temple that would have been super duper helpful maybe take out some of the backstory about cal like i don't need to know that he once had a threesome with two dudes i mean good for him fantastic have fun didn't add a whole lot to the story maybe have a little bit about his memory with Cassandra in there instead so that you know that there's a pre-existing relationship and you're not kind of smacked in the face when it comes up in the, the like the present day narration. But I did enjoy that. It was surprising and yeah, interested to see what Cassandra does, how she's, how she works in, in the third book. Was there anything that you were surprised by or maybe something you were disappointed with that was left out? I mean, I feel
1: like i talked, at length today about all the things that i was disappointed in so yeah, i'll go with um things that i was sad were left out i wanted more with helen definitely i mean Same. i knew we probably weren't going to get a lot more just because well it wasn't really set up you know there was there was no foreshadowing that we'd get more so it was just kind of like Neh. so I was like okay but yeah, I just I would have I would have liked more with her because you know we don't get to hear from her a lot. She's one of these voices
0: we just kind of like. Neh. So I would like. Sorry, I'm going to cut in here. And if someone listening has a recommendation, please let us know. I want a book of the Trojan War from Helen's point of view. I want to know what yes. the hell she's doing. And and yes. women and um fall of Troy, fall of a city. Gets into that beautifully. I enjoyed how much Helen we saw in that. But I want a book narrated by Helen with Helen's thoughts and feelings and what the hell is going on because I think that would be really, really interesting. And there are so many yeah. different directions you can take it. That would be fascinating.
1: Yes. I mean, because we don't really have anything that even comes close to it. I mean, I guess we sort of have bits and pieces of narration or 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 things from her point of view but not really no i do i do i i I also i want something that is completely hers um because when i think of her and when i want to be more charitable i don't think of the troy 2004 version of her because that was just sad and disappointing and makes me angry makes my blood boil but i sort of think of like the helen from fall of a city because then she was at least a bit more well rounded more conflicted because at least with that version it would always cut to the when alexander's missing she feels bad she feels really bad like real real bad or you know and then she'll have this moment of i left my daughter in sparta and you're like oh okay she's she's feeling bad about leaving her child behind, even though she was like, Yeah, well, she doesn't need me. I'm still like, okay, well, ciao, she, baby. You know, whatever. But um, and then maybe was it Helena Troy? I don't remember what we did. It, we, we sort of got her but no, like, none of it is a complete and full picture. It's just snippets and I'm tired of snippets. Now we have all these freaking revivals and retellings of modern myth, especially this one. So yes, if someone is out there, please make me a thing where I can hear from Helen and only Helen, it's like the only Helen fans. No, not fans. Only Helen Space. I don't know. No, this is sounding really weird because now I sound like a Helen fan and I'm not a Helen fan. It's,
0: it's weird because thinking back to the predictions episode we did, like neither of us liked Helen. We were not expecting to like Helen. I still don't really like her, but I feel like she's kind of given the short end of the stick here, right? Everyone blames her for this. <laughs> and there's very little of Helen speaking for herself to kind of exonerate her reputation
1: yeah well the closest we got is the one from fall of the city i i feel that's the closest one we got to even sort of looking like Uh, (laughs) although I'm like, so is she adult or is she a child? Because Helen of Troy says she's a child, and then others are like she's a grown ass adult who's making these decisions. I think what was it? Was it during the predictions episode something when we were talking about what? How old are they? Aren't they as old as like Romeo and Juliet? So technically, if she's not actually an adult, then these would be like childish decisions where it's hard
0: for her to account for herself, but. I don't, and especially because of how long the war is. I I suspect that that feelings, thoughts, and motivations would obviously change. So if you get her running away on like a childish whim, and then getting to <laughs> Troy and, and two years in, thinking, "What did I do? <laughs> Why did like fifteen year old me think this was a good idea?" That would be very interesting to me. I feel like she's like thirteen, though. Yeah. I- but you know
1: isn't it sad that even if she ran away or was stolen or however you want to interpret that at 13 on a childish thing by the end of the war she'd still only be 23 and as a 23 year old your brain is still not fully formed as an adult because that that doesn't set until you're like 25 so i'm like oh my god so she could have started at 13 legitimately a child but she would still be 23 and 23 year olds as we know make stupid decisions all the time like i know That's when you're ideally graduated from college. But come on, let's be real. What 23-year-old actually makes like good decisions, especially with romantic stuff? I mean, okay, I know a lot of responsible 23-year-olds who could manage their finances and who worked through college or, you know, got a job or did something responsible financially. That's all well and good. At 23, I'm sorry. You're really not that mature for love and romance. So, nah, I don't no 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 helen is like yes helen does get shortchanged a lot because we never hear from her ever but i don't really know if there's much she could do even if she gets her own narrative because if she's like 13 well that's all you need to know she's 13. yeah um i think we did try to determine her age because we were like well she has a child so how old do you have to be i mean well, she could have a child from, like, nine years old or ten years old, but we're kind of just like... "Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So, I'm kind of just like, I don't know. But I think she's at least 13, 14, or 15, which would still make her 23, 24, 25 at the end of the war. So... Still not, like... On the
0: young end of things.
1: Yeah, still not, like, sage adult, because, I mean you know i'm a little closer to it i only just turned 27 in september so i'm kind of like okay so that would be like being in troy until two years ago um yeah yeah when i think of shit i did five years ago i'm like i was such a child why did i say or do that and i'm like it'd be like that times 10 for helen so i will just say yes i was disappointed we didn't get more from her because she does qualify as a woman of Troy, definitely. So she would have been a perspective I like to hear. And I really felt that this would have been the natural other narrative that she would show up in. Because Natalie Haynes didn't cover her in her novel. So if she, because the natural fit would have been to be in something like that. So since she wasn't, I would have expected her in something like this because... I don't think any of the other adaptations we've seen really would cover the the women's issues or the women's problems or whatever, the way they do here. So yeah, I'm just like, eh, okay,
0: great. So if anyone listening is either planning on writing one or knows of one that we haven't found, please tell us, because that would be wonderful. And we should probably wrap up for today's episode, but everyone, thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah. So. Uh, that's what we think about the end of, Win of Women of Troy. Uh, let us know what you think if you agree with us, if you disagree with us, and if you're Pat Barker and you happen to listen to this one day, we would like to talk to you because we have so many questions. I don't really think she's going to listen to this, but just in case, <laughs> might as well say that now. But yeah, so join us next week for Song of Achilles, yet another Iliad adaptation, uh, but this time. We will be departing from the mostly female perspective and we will be diving into the head and consciousness of Patroclus. Beautiful. Great. Well, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review. And you can also follow us on social media at the Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week.